I draw your attention to the little chart uh, thing I gave you. It's actually a PowerPoint slide, but it, it, it looks uh, helpful. I hope it's helpful for you in, in understanding this incredible prayer of Paul in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Now we're almost, well, we're about two-thirds of the way through the prayer, but let me just orient you, particularly there's several of you weren't here last week, uh, where it's a verse 9 through verse 14 of Colossians chapter 1 is the prayer. Now, I'm going to walk you through this real quickly. The main part of the prayer, in other words, the core of the prayer is, Father, fill them with the knowledge of your will. Now, how would that occur? Through spiritual wisdom and understanding. We talked about each one of those terms or phrases. And then there's an intended purpose for the prayer. As God fills them with the knowledge of his will, through spiritual wisdom and understanding, the purpose is that they will walk in a manner worthy, and then I put the same standard of Christ, holy as he's holy, and in a walk that is fully pleasing to the Father. So, we, again, we talked about each one of those. I'm not going to go over all that again. Where we are just are starting this morning, then, is fully pleasing. And, you know, always the struggle is you have a Greek phrase or a term. How do you bring that into English that captures the thought? And I really do like how the ESV, which is the translation I'm reading from, translates that fully pleasing. Um, it's a... It really comes from a whole idea that has to do with the sacrificial system, like the uh, sweet, savor, aroma in the nostrils of God. I mean, that's a giving physical characteristics to God, but it, it, it should make sense to you. It's really pleasing to the Lord. What is really pleasing? What would a, what would a life that is fully pleasing to the Lord look like? And so, now, again, I hope it's all right I do it this way because I don't know how else to do it. I think it really expands it. If you were to diagram this, you would have, from fully pleasing, you had four participles. Aren't you glad I told you that? Doesn't that make sense? But it's just these four participles explain what fully pleasing looks like. So let's just go through those. First, bearing fruit. The text, uh, the text reads... Bearing fruit in every good work. Okay, what fruit? What, where do we see the term fruit used in the New Testament that helps us understand what's he talking about? What fruit? And so you go to the fruit of the Spirit in, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and you have nine character traits listed there. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc., etc. So, okay, I understand that. That's pleasing to the Lord. His spirit produces this in my life. That's pleasing to him. Secondly, growing in the knowledge of God, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now there is, a, there is I hope, in terms of our application today, that's one of the reasons you come to a class like this. You're getting a deeper and deeper understanding of God, what he's doing, what he's like, what his purposes are, etc., and it's, you know, I, this, to me, this is an axiom of Christianity. You are not going to grow if you do not also grow in your understanding who God is. If you look at God as a fair-weather friend, just 
you know, you call on him when you get in trouble, and the rest, you don't want him to rest do it. That's, that's not what he wants, and that's not pleasing to him. But a deeper and deeper knowledge of, of him. Every one of my Bible studies, and I teach four, every one of them is growing. And, and, and it just, and not, you know, huge numbers, but just incrementally. And it's because people today, for the most part, once they are exposed to in-depth teaching of God's Word, they keep coming back. They want that. I'm, I'm watching, and it's one of the most affirming and rewarding things for Peggy and me right now, is our daughter. She's gone through a couple of difficult things the last six, seven months. But, you know, as always, it's in your life and my life, too. In those kinds of situations, it draws them closer to the Lord. And the things she texts us now and when she, we talk to her and, 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 and get emails from her, it's just remarkable what the Lord is doing in her heart. Amen. I mean, it's just it's a fantastic thing to see for a dad to see his daughter growing in the Lord. And the same thing is happening with her, with her, with her husband. So it's the kind of thing that you just say, thank you, Lord. But it's deeper and deeper understanding of who God is. Because the closer you get to him, the more you desire to obey him in a loving obedience. Now, the third bullet or the third part of simple is it's much, what you try to diagram, it's really kind of hard. But it, the verse reads in verse 11, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Big, big phrase, big clause. Being strengthened with all power according to his might. Okay, what what does that mean? Let's work from the end of the phrase to the beginning. What is the standard? I hope you understand how I'm asking this question. What is the standard by which we measure and think about his power? According to his glorious might. That's a military term. The glorious might of God. <laughs> How do you start talking about that? Well, creation. Creation is a great, Willie. That's a, Woody, that's a great place to start. The glorious might of God you see demonstrated in his creation. He speaks things into existence. You, you, see, you see how his glorious might is manifested in his sovereign providence of history. I'm In one of my other classes, we're going through the kings of Israel. We're almost done. As a matter of fact, probably today we'll finish. But, and we've been on this for like 10 months. But you, you go through the various aspects of the monarchy period. One of them is still in the northern kingdom. And Elisha, Ben-Hadad II, has laid siege to his Israeli town, Ahab the king. And the, the servants of Elijah are just, just absolutely melting out of fear. Do you, do you remember what Elijah does? Show my servant your armies, Lord. And for a moment, he, see, he sees the armies of God all around the armies of Ben-Hadad II. The angels, the angelic host and power. And you, just, you begin to see that you and I have no idea of the glorious might and power of God. It's manifested in so many different ways. 
But probably for you and me in terms of the redemptive plan of God, the greatest demonstration of glorious might and power is the resurrection. That's the, that's the greatest demonstration of that. Because he brought Jesus back from the dead. He conquered death. He conquered Satan. He defeated evil that moment he brought Jesus back from the dead in the resurrection. And so Paul is saying, Lord, I want you to strengthen these Colossian believers. Strengthen them with the power that meets the standard of your glorious might. What he said is manifested in creation, is manifested in the angelic armies of heaven, and is manifested in the resurrection. Why? Why pray that? So that they may persevere. The text says, so that for all endurance, that's hupo mane, that's persevere, hang in there, don't give up, and patience. And patience is that, that self-restraint to endure, uh, not be overcome and overwhelmed by fear, but patiently wait and trust in the Lord to act. You mentioned last week something about spontaneous decisions that we might have made before and, and we're to grow out of that. Mm. I have to report that I am not quite out of that. <laughs> Neither am I. <laughs> I was taking the flyer home last week and uh, we were on 108th Street going south on the other side of Q. And they had a bunch of no-turn intersections. And, and we got to the last one, and I said to Lyle, looks like we're going to have to go on to Harrison Street and go back. And he says, no, you can go here. Everybody goes here. And so I said, okay, and I put right in there, even though it said no left turn. We had just got around the corner, and we heard this Siren. Oh. <laughs> what and I didn't tell you, not everybody does in front of a cop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I stopped, and this motorcycle patrolman walked up beside me. He said, "You turned left, right in front of me." Now I didn't even know. I, I wasn't watch. I don't watch out and fear the police anymore since I got sober. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I paid no attention to him, and. Uh, so he took my information, went back to the motorcycle and come back up and, and uh, he says, now I'm going to give you a, what was it, Lyle? Warning. A warning, warning. ticket. And uh, Lyle, before he got there, Lyle said, oh, Ron, I'm so sorry. He says, I'll pay for it. And I said, no, I wouldn't let you do that. It's my decision, you know. I listened to him. And anyway, so <laughs> when he gave me that warning ticket, that pleased me. And I said, oh, man, thanks. I said, we just come from a Bible study, and I'm taking Lyle home here. And he said, well, good. He said, maybe it was your higher power. <laughs> well, that was the gracious mercy and compassion of God, I'll tell you, yeah. that he did not give you a ticket. That is really good. That's what this man thought. <laughs> yes, well, it really was, that's for sure. Um, and I'll thank you for sharing that. Well, I think we all, uh, you used one illustration, but we all continue to struggle with those impulsive, quick decisions, not necessarily always choosing wisely, and then we live with the consequences. 
and learn never to do it again. <clears throat> the powerful thing about all of this is fully pleasing in any religious setting or mindset is just to be obedient to the law and just follow the rules and this is how you can be pleasing. Over here it is growing, it is working hard. And the third point is realizing how weak we are and we have to be strengthened by the most powerful God and not our strength. And I, I think that's a very unique thing into Absolutely. Life in Christ. Absolutely. That's a really uh, very appropriate comment, uh, Mark, it really is, because the the third bullet or that third participle grammatically is really stressing that we cannot please the Lord in the way it's being described here in these verses without the power and strength of the Lord. We can't do it. And every other, and there are no exceptions to this, every other world religion and worldview says it's up to you to do it. Biblical Christianity is saying you can't do it, but I'm going to give you the power and enablement to do it. So Paul prays for them to be strengthened with the power according to the glorious might of God, who did all the things we've been talking about. And it is that realization, and that's what, that's what Joanna is learning. She's 32 years old, but she's learning that. She cannot do what God wants her to do in her own strength. And that's a tremendous lesson for a young lady to learn. It really is. And, you know, sometimes it takes so long sometimes for us to learn that. But Joanna is really, and a couple of people really hurt her. They're just a long, complicated story. But she said the other night we got a text from her, she says, I just read, she reads a couple different devotional things, but one of us was in Swindoll, and she just was again reminded of the importance of God's grace, and she said, in God's grace and through his power, I must forgive. Then she named the three people who really hurt her. And I mean, that's a, you know, that's a great thing for a young gal to be able to say, because typically what you want to say is, I want to strangle them. I want to take out a hit on them, you know, being exaggerating but tremendous lesson and so you see this in Paul's prayer and then he closes out the prayer with a fourth participle that's pleasing to the father joyfully giving thanks to the father I mean those two words joyfully giving with joy giving thanks joyfully giving thanks it's a spirit of thankfulness in life What's the opposite of a spirit of thankfulness in life? What? Okay. Spirit of griping and complaining, grumbling. Have you ever been around people like that? I mean, you know, it's just, there's absolutely nothing that they're thankful for. Everything is wrong. It's just complaining and griping and grumbling. And Paul is saying, again, anchoring it in what he's been praying before, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Now, I want to, he, he itemizes three things, or really three reasons. But I'm not, there's so many things I want to ask you about it. I don't want to drag this out. But what, what should cause us to have a thankful spirit when it comes to, to God, to the Lord? You 
because even in difficult circumstances, one can still be appreciative and thankful for it. And when my wife asked for example, I knew that I could either, at the end of that, be bitter and angry and resentful about it. I knew what that would do to me personally. Mm. Or I could choose to be, believe that God had a plan and mm. walk in it. So I think it's more than anything, it's a choice. Well, that's absolutely spot on there. It's, um, could we even say, Jim, to, to an extent, even in the mundane things of life, as well as extraordinary things of life like you faced a number of years ago with, with your wife when she got sick, um, every morning you, have, you wake up and your choice is, am I going to be a grump today? Or am I going to be thankful today? Absolutely. Am I going to thankful today for life, for another day, to enjoy the life, whatever it is, however old we are? What, I mean, that's a, that's a tremendous, that's a tremendous virtue to have in life. My mother, who died, you know, in, in April, as you know, my mom was one of those individuals who, um, she, her thankful spirit was so contagious. My father wasn't like that. My father was very difficult to be around day after day. But my mom was just that smiling, in, incredibly gracious and thankful about almost everything in life. And so when I read something like this immediately, even as I read it a moment ago, I thought of my mom. Because that, that's what she modeled before us as her, as her children, that joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Now Paul gets real specific, though, and this, is, this is closes out the prayer. There are three reasons, three reasons for us to have a thankful spirit. Look at this, the first one. He delivered, uh, he qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's a big statement. But how did he qualify you and me to share in the inheritance of the saints? The blood of Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus Christ, by making that provision, he has qualified us. We put our faith in Christ. We now are part of the inheritance. We're in part of all the promises being fulfilled. It's a tremendous reef. Good night, yes. Despite all that's going on in my life, that's such a mess. Jesus Christ has made it possible for me to be qualified for the inheritance of all the saints. Heaven. New heaven and new earth after the kingdom period. So it's a, man, that's something to be thankful for. No matter how sick, how debilitated, how old, whatever the story, thankful that he's powerful. He doesn't stop there. This is really significant. <coughs> Secondly, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. You know what the word in Greek for delivered is? Exodus. What does that sound like? The exodus. <laughs> so I mean it's it's that it comes from that term. What's the domain of darkness? Whose domain is that? That's Satan. It's Satan's kingdom. Throughout the Bible, Satan's kingdom is described as a kingdom of darkness. And so that's telling us something. Before we put our faith in Christ, we were in the domain of darkness. And look at that next and final phrase. Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He changed our citizenship. 
He did it. We didn't do it. We have a new passport. Our old passport was we were residents and citizens of the kingdom of Satan, the domain of darkness. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. We're new to Satan. We get a new passport. Now we're citizens of the kingdom of his dear son. And that no one can take that passport away from you. I'm trying to use an analogy that I hope makes sense. But that's a, that's a fantastic, it's, one of, it's rarely put so succinctly in the Bible of what God has done for us, transferred us from one kingdom into another kingdom with all the rights and privileges that go with being a citizen of that kingdom. And, and so you, oh man, yeah, I have a lot to thank God for. So he itemizes three things to be thankful for. He qualified us for your inheritance, eternal life. He transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And so, you, oh, no matter what's going on in my life, I can thank Father for that. Now, he's not quite done because it's like he just can hardly contain himself. King with his beloved son, he adds one more statement of Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In my, it's appositional. In my Bible, what I did, in whom we have redemption, I put a little equal mark then, equal sign. Redemption, which equals the forgiveness of sin. So redemption, these are two words. Redemption, there are three words for that in the New Testament, but they all mean to purchase, to buy. So Jesus redeemed us. The beloved son redeemed us. And Joel said it in answer to my other question. What was the price of the redemption he paid? His blood. He shed blood. The result of that is the forgiveness of sin. And uh, we've talked about that before. This is the judicial forgiveness of God. The, um, the, the language of one of the Psalms is, God takes our sin, forgives them, and buries them in the depths of the sea and remembers them no more. Now, this isn't in the Bible, but it should be. And then he puts a sign there, no fishing. But that's, you know, that's not in the Bible. But it seems like it should be. So, I mean, it's, uh, Paul's just, he just keeps dumping all of these tremendous truths, one after another after another. But the kingdom of his beloved son, his beloved son in whom we have redemption, he purchased us, he bought us, we're no longer our own, which results in the forgiveness, judicial forgiveness of sin. Okay? That's positional truth. It's positional truth. And you put your faith in Christ, he, none of this can be taken away from you. This is who you are. And it, you give it, thanks. Yeah, and it's, it's the reasons why we can give thanks to the Lord. You, you put your faith in Christ, you're in God's family. Yep. And he's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you go. He's not He's not going to kick you out of the family. He will, as a good father does, he will discipline us when we need to discipline. But it's just, yeah, because we're in the family. It's just a, it's a fantastic prayer. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's just one of the great prayers of the Bible. 
it's almost as good as the one Woody uh, prayed earlier for. <laughs> Not quite, but almost good. No. Are there any um, are there any questions uh, or comments about this prayer? I mean, we spent you know a good chunk of last hour on it, and almost a half hour this this uh, hour on it. It's a great prayer. I hope it's a blessing to you. And you know, I, could you speak a little bit to, to the term light? What term? Light. Light. Well, um, well, there are two different ways to approach it, it seems to me, in terms of the whole uh, 66 books of the Bible. One is that light is associated with a very key attribute and activity of God as he creates. Let there be light. And that is important because verse 2 of chapter 1 in Genesis, you have, it's a very important verse, but the earth was void, um, without form, and darkness was upon the deep. That is, it's a very ominous sounding verse and it needs to really be executed. But the very next thing God does is spirits hovering over the waters, let there be light. And light, light is used then as a metaphor to describe who God is. God is light. Jesus comes into the world, and in John's Gospel, there's a whole section on it, when he says, I am the light of the world. And as you watch him develop that, that figure of speech, he says, my light, I'm paraphrasing, but my light conquers darkness. And what do we just read? The domain of darkness is the domain of Satan. So as Jesus comes into the world in the incarnation, what is he invading? To use a military term. He's invading the kingdom of darkness. And as Jesus comes into the world, every time Jesus says something or does something, he is exposing darkness for what it is. Are you following through? with That's, that's how the Bible presents that. The other thing that, the other aspect of it is that light is always associated with the kingdom of God. That there is no dark. As a matter of fact, if we've understood this correctly, it's kind of complicated. But in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no darkness at all. There will be no night. Which is really interesting. I mean, you know, if you've ever been way up north, the Scandinavian country, Alaska, you know, where... There are some days in the year that, you know, it's light all the time. <laughs> the sun never goes down, and other times where it's dark almost all year. And, you know, you kind of think, uh, I, don't, I know in, um, in parts of England where my son lives, in, in London, they go through many months of the year where it's just damp and dark and dreary day after day after day. You know, they've done a lot of, that affects your psychology. It really does. And then the sun comes out, and then every single citizen of London is outside that day because there have been months where they've been cooped up, where it's dark and damp. Now I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there is something about the way God created us. We love the light. We don't like darkness. When, I'm sure this was true. When my little children, my, my children were real little, 
They didn't want to sleep without a light. So, you know, like we bought them night and you, all these crafty little nicks, uh, things of, of, of night lights. You know, for Jonathan, it was a car. And for Joanna, it was a, a polar bear. You know, I don't know how we found those, but Peggy did. But light, because light, light helps communicate comfort, security, safety, whereas darkness doesn't. What does Jesus say? Men love darkness. Because their deeds of evil are done in darkness. So that's a long answer to your question. In Colossae. He was trying to enhance their faith and approach to them. That's great. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know what Jesus says in Matthew 5? You are the light of the world. What's the context from saying that? The Beatitudes. Those eight quality traits. So what does that mean? As we live those out, we're the light of the world. We're exposing darkness for what it really is. See, every, this, I mean, this, that is, this is just a great question. It's just filled with all kinds of bunny trails that are developed throughout the Bible. But God is a God of light, not of darkness. And light always exposes darkness. Light always conquers darkness. Darkness doesn't have a chance when it comes to light. And so you just work through that metaphor and you see when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, you understand what he means by that. He is going to expose darkness, Satan's kingdom for what it is. It's a kingdom of liars. It's a kingdom of deception. It's a kingdom of promising what it can't deliver. You know, I don't know about you, but with great despair, I'm reading about these teenagers vaping. You know, I'm thinking... You know, so much that we don't, there's so much we don't know about that because it's new and they're trying all kinds of different things and they buy them on the streets. I mean, just think about it. Just common sense tells you I'm inhaling things into my lungs and blowing them out. You know, you just think, why would you do that? <laughs> you know, I'm not even talking about tobacco. I'm just talking about this, this vaping. And you just, you see that. And now they're starting to, you know, these cases are starting strange, unusual lung diseases. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to make a bold statement here. But that is an example of Satan's lying, deceptive ways. Promising to a 15-year-old what he can't deliver. And they latch on to it. And so what, what happens? It can, it doesn't happen at all. But it ends up basically destroying their lives. Satan promises what he can't deliver. That's darkness. Jesus offers light, which exposes darkness for what it is. When the word of God is preached, what we're doing this morning, what the word of, the word of God exposes darkness for what it is. And you have to choose. Am I going to believe that the lies of darkness or am I going to believe the truth of light? And, you know, and everything that is a part of our lives. God wants us, as the more and more we read and the more and more we come to understand, to choose the kingdom of light 
and reject the kingdom of darkness. And only in the power of Jesus can we do that. All right. Oh, now we're into one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible. It's a big statement, but it is. Now, Paul launches into, starting in verse 15, the main part of the book, or the letter, I should say. Because remember, Paul wants to counter a heresy that is creeping its way into the church at Little Colossae. They have a distorted, warped view of Jesus. So Paul launches into one of the greatest descriptions of Jesus there is in the Bible. It's short. It's it's almost pithy. Bang, 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 bang. But I'm going to strive here to the best of my ability to help you understand the structure of this so you understand the power of this. So let's start with verse 15. He, now to whom is that pronoun he referring? To Jesus, the Son of God, the beloved Son. We just saw him discussed in the previous verses. So he, the beloved Son, is the image of the invisible God. Again, we're going to do a lot. I'm, is there, I'm going to take about three sheets of paper. Is that all right? First of all, when he says he is, this is Paul writing, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That word image. The Greek word there is icon. Now, I, that, I know I, that doesn't mean to you. But what English word do we get from that? Jim said it, icon. The English word icon comes from that. So what does that mean? This was used, the word icon, was used um, in the Roman Empire. Every time a new Caesar came on the throne, he'd issue a whole bunch of coins. And whose image was on that coin? The new Caesar. Every time a new Caesar came on the throne, throughout the entire Mediterranean world, you'd see statues of him now in every town, in every crossroads, in every tax collecting center. Why? The ubiquitous nature of Caesar. Isn't that a great word, ubiquitous? You know what ubiquitous means? Everywhere. So, in other words, and it was exactly the Roman and Greek architect, the Roman and Greek sculpture was portrait sculpture. Do you know what I mean by that? Exactly representing what he looked like. And I mean, we have found hundreds of these in archaeology. There's one that was found in, in, in Israel uh, a couple of decades ago of Hadrian, the great Caesar Hadrian. It's a perfect, a perfect icon of him. You want to know what Hadrian looks like? You look at that. So that's what Paul is communicating here. You want to know what the invisible God looks like, who is spirit? What's the answer to that? Look at Jesus. Now let's, let's buttress this with what Jesus says in John chapter 14. Oh, I don't know the exact verse. Um, I think it's, it's close to verse 9. But Philip is asking him questions. They're in the upper room. Philip's asking questions. And he, he says, Jesus, show us the Father and it'll, it'll satisfy. Remember Jesus' response? 
Yeah, Philip, I've been with you so long and you still don't understand it? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Amen. You want to know what the invisible God is like? You look at Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, we studied that in number of, uh, or last year. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In these last days, God has revealed himself through his Son. The fourth and final revelation of God. And so that's what Paul is saying. You want to know, Jesus is the image, the icon, the exact representation of God. You want to know what the invisible God looks like? Look at Jesus. He is the revelation. Now, he doesn't stop there. This phrase has created so much confusion, and it, 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 when, and the reason it creates confusion is people don't understand what the Greek word means. But he's the image of the invisible God, comma, the firstborn of all creation. So statement number one is he reveals God, the perfect representation of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. Jesus is the greatest and final revelation of God. The second thing he says is he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, the Greek word there is prototokos. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything, but I want to write this out because that's really important. If you're really going to do in-depth study, you have to understand this is a unique Greek word. Now, when you read that word in English, firstborn of all creation, what comes to your mind? Do you understand the nature of my question? Adam, maybe. What's that? You would think of Adam, maybe. Okay. Go ahead. I, didn't, I thought you said, I said Adam. Oh, Mark said? I said Adam. Okay, Adam. So, but I also put to, push that a little further. If you're first born, what is the, in English, what's the inference you draw from that? Well, okay, meaning there was a time when you didn't exist, now there's a time when you exist. Let's put it another way. When you read the word firstborn, you think of birth. And if you're thinking of someone being born, then in terms of their attributes and qualities, firstborn of all creation, would you say is eternal? No, there was a time he wasn't. There was a time he is. That's not what firstborn means in Greek. That is not what prototokos means. Now, I'm going to utter a sentence here. It's a really important sentence. Firstborn, prototokos, has nothing to do with origin. It has everything to do with rank. Position. Do you understand? I'm going to repeat that sentence. Prototokos, we translate it firstborn, has nothing to do with origin, beginning. It has everything to do with rank. With position. Do you want me to say it again? I'll repeat it one more time. Prototokos, firstborn, has really nothing to do with origin or beginning. It has everything to do with rank, with position. And Paul is explicit on that. First, born of or over all creation. See what he's doing? Preeminent over everything. Pardon? 
Yeah. So, I mean, see, this is why her- heresy has been born from that phrase, firstborn, prototokos. There was a heresy in the late 200s in the early church called Arianism. It's built over into the 300s. And the leader of that guy in Arius says, there was a time when Jesus wasn't. Jesus was a created being. The Father, or God created him, and he created everything else. Now, there's a word for that, and that word is heresy. That is not what the Bible teaches. But he built it all around this phrase, and it demonstrates his misunderstanding of the Greek language. And uh, among other, many others really corrected him and so on, took out after him on that. But now notice, what time is it? Okay. Can I just make a comment? Absolutely. Um, Psalm 89.27 says, and, and the, I looked for Prototokos, and this article came up that used this verse. Uh, Psalm 89.27 says, I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So in reference to... His position. His position. Rank. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Good. That's, that's a good cross-reference in the Old Testament. So... What, what is the proof or the... The reference that Paul is using to make those decisions from the words of Jesus himself. I'm, Mark, I'm not sure I'm understanding your question. I hear you. Paul is making assertions and making statements that are very bold to eliminate all the heresies. You would ask him, so what is your proof of that? That's verse 16 and 17. Okay, okay the proof of why he makes this claim is verse 16 and 17. That's a great question. Are there, is everybody with me? I mean, I don't want you, because I, I'd like to try to do a lot in 15 minutes, but I, I don't want to go too fast. First word is an exact translation of the protocol. Yeah, uh, because um, in, in terms of in a family or extended family situation, who has the rank and position? The firstborn. The oldest, the firstborn. And so what Paul is, and, and that is why it is, it is not inaccurate to translate it firstborn, because there, there's almost no other single English term that captures the preeminence of this person. What, what buttresses it is what is in verse 16 and 17. Why does he have this position of preeminence? And Paul's, Paul's articulated reasons for this are very, very clear. And that's what I want to work into. Are there any other questions? So actually the misunderstanding that we have about the firstborn uh, is how we understand the firstborn. The firstborn started by the dominion over everything, this is the origin of the word, and then later on we give it to the first, the the one person later on. We try to honor the firstborn by giving them the thing. So our misunderstanding is the second, not the first. Makes sense. Uh, I think so. Yes, he's choosing a term. Get more. He's choosing a term that must be clarified in terms of getting its full meaning by the context in which he's saying it. Okay? He's not talking, he's not saying he's firstborn in a family because he's the oldest and inherits all the property. That's not what he's saying here. 
He's firstborn over all creation. Why? Paul offers three reasons. There's a little Greek word there that begins verse 16, gar, which means reason. He offers three reasons. Three reasons for this claim. What is reason number one? Look at what he says. Now verse 16. For by him all things were created. What is captured in the phrase all things? All things. things, Everything. Is anything left out? Yeah, right. But so we don't miss that. Paul really elaborates on what he means by all things. In heaven or on earth. The geographical and spatial boundaries of how we think about things. Heaven and earth. Secondly, visible and invisible. Now, you just think, heaven and earth. In, 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 uh, in, in English grammar and stuff, these are called merisms. The two opposites of everything. The, the two, and everything in between. So heaven and earth and everything in between. Visible and invisible and everything in between. When you think of visible, is there anything excluded from visible and invisible? No. Is there anything excluded? No. And then he adds, this is really important, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That can have two applications, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities in the visible world. Throne, dominions, rules, and authorities in the invisible world. That's why we take from this and some material in Ephesians and some material in the things Jesus says that there are ranks to the angels. There are ranks of authority in the angels. We know, for example, there's archangels. Michael is a named archangel in the Bible. So what I'm saying is, and this is what Paul is saying, the thrones, dominions, rules, and authority in the visible world the thrones, dominions, authorities, and rulers in the invisible world. So it's not only all things heaven and earth in between, all things visible, all powers and structures in both worlds. Now, as Paul has elaborated upon this, is anything left out? All things were created. So reason number one, why he can make that argument of Christ's preeminence is that he is the creator and the creator of all things. And Paul has gone out of his way, and I'm not going to write all that down, he has gone out of his way for us to understand absolutely nothing is excluded from all things. So, is that a reason for the preeminence of Jesus? For him to be first in rank and authority over all creation? Yes. Second, verse 17. Oh, forgot. Oh, my goodness. The end of verse 16. All things, this is repeating that again, were created through him and, what's it say? For him. The purpose of all things is realized in Jesus. That's a good sentence. I just thought of that. That's, I ought to repeat that. 
The purpose of all things are realized in Jesus. Everything finds its purpose in him, for him. Is there coming a day when everything in the created order will bow down to Jesus? Yes, Paul promises that in Philippians 2. There's coming a time when everyone, whether they're in rebellion against Jesus or not, will bow down to him as king of kings and lord of lords. That hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for that to happen. So Paul is just, it's, it's an extraordinarily powerful theological statement. All things, nothing is left out. All things were created by Jesus. He is the agent of everything that's created. And all created things find their purpose in him. It's too, it's hard to get excited about biblical truth in the middle of the day. I know that. But that's kind of exciting. It really is. 17a. Would you notice, please, the word and? That's a coordinating conjunction. Aren't you glad I reminded you of that from English grammar? But Paul is linking reasons together. And he is before things, and in him all things hold together. So you have two more reasons. First of all, Paul, it's, it's really strange. In the, in, the, in the original language, it's kind of weird. It really is how it reads. But he is before all things. Now, that's the same phrase, all things, that we saw in verse 16 and the end of verse 16. He's continuing that. So, how do you speak of Jesus Christ in terms of time? Pardon? He's before all things. What does that mean? Literally, he's saying, he am. That's literally what he's saying, he am. So, let's just, let's put it, how do you speak of Jesus in terms of time? Can you say accurately he was no. no because he always has been can you say he will be future tense no so how do you talk about Jesus he is he is he am I am when Moses is trying to figure out who do I say to the elders of Israel sent me to be the deliverer of Israel out of Egypt what does God say I am that I am sent you. And in John 8, 58, when Jesus is debating with the Pharisees, and they're saying, well, he says, Abraham delighted to see my day. And they scathingly say, Abraham, well, you're not even 40 years old, and you've seen Abraham. Do you remember his answer? Before Abraham was, I am. So Paul is picking up all of that. And saying, how do you speak of Jesus Christ in terms of time? He am. In other words, another way of putting that is, he's eternal. How do you speak of Jesus Christ in terms of time? You can only speak of Jesus Christ in terms of time in the same attribute, in the same language, you speak of God. He's eternal. He is not confined to space and time. He's transcendent. He's above space and time. So the only way to say it is he is, he am, before all things. And then the third point he makes, and this is great. The third point is, and 
In him, now here's that phrase again, all things hold together. So he is the sustainer of his creation. You know, this remains, for, for people who study these things, science and all that stuff, there's still a mystery of how this world holds together. When I was in college and I had chemistry, I studied and I learned that matter was made up of molecules, which were made up of atoms, which were made up of electrons and protons and neutrons spinning around, moving a crazy thing, and the number of them determined the element and all that stuff. And that was what that's okay. Uh, and you would ask, and I remember in the class, somebody, well, what holds all that together? The answer is we don't know. Now it's 2019. Do we know? Well, what we know is, and it's really strange, the more you study subparticle physics, well, we know that there are muons and leptons and there are quarks and there's dark force and weak force. But do we really know what holds all matter together? No. Colossians 1.17b tells you Jesus does. Now, I mean, it's, and that's, that's an offensive thing to say to a physicist today. But the answer is, it's Jesus. Jesus holds his creation together. He sustains his creation. Now, the other end of, of creation are the galaxies and so on. You know, Hubble Telescope has really helped us to understand. We have so much more information to understand. But still, the basic question that still can't be answered, what's, because all these, you know, galaxies move and spin. You know, nothing is static in God's world. And so they're all moving around. The answer, what holds all that together? Well, we really don't know. We thought we knew when Isaac Newton discovered the laws of physics, inertia and gravity and all that, but Einstein put a spin on that in the early 20th century with his general specific theory of relativity and quantums. We're, sort of, we're finding out, you know, we still don't really quite understand how all this works. With all the brilliance of all these people and the trillions of dollars we've thrown at research, we still don't understand it. Jesus who's the creator of all things, the eternal God, holds his world together. And that's an extraordinary claim of the Apostle Paul here. All things hold together. One commentator has put it, it's almost irreverent, but one commentator has put it this way, Jesus is the cosmic glue of the universe. That's not bad, is it? You can remember that. You, you get the, sort of get the, I really like this passage. I mean, it's so, I mean, it's only, it's only three verses, 15, 16, and 17. But the tremendous doctrinal truth that is communicated. Don't bring Jesus down. He's not just a great man. He is the final revelation of the invisible God. He has preeminence over everything because he created everything. He is the eternal God and he's the sustainer of everything. Don't diminish. Don't use words or terms that in any way diminish Jesus. As, as elevated as you can think of him in preeminence, that's where he needs to be.
And so Paul has given us human language to try to capture in three short verses an answer to the question, who is Jesus? It's a good summary. I'm studying one of my other Bible studies. We're studying the Gospel of John. Just got to start it. And I, I'm telling the men there, and it's really true, in some ways, the Gospel of John is to prove a thesis, that Jesus is the God-man. John's unique. 90% of John's Gospel is unique to John. So it's a very unique Gospel. And it's really been interesting because it's almost like John is saying, you think you know who Jesus is? Let me explain to you who he is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Man, that's the gospel. It opens with that, and you got to sit. Man, i got to think about that for a minute. I have to really work through that sentence. It's a tremendous claim about who Jesus is. And then it goes on for 17 more verses. In the very last verse of that early paragraph, verse 18, and the very God is in the bosom of the Father, and he exegetes him. He reveals him. He explains him. The very God, Jesus, is in the bosom of the Father. You have the two persons of the Trinity, and Jesus exegetes. He explains who the invisible God is. Exactly what Paul is saying here. He's the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? The incarnation answers that question. So, Aren't you excited about this? This is a tremendous passage of scripture. Yeah. Can we next Wednesday talk more about this? Yeah. Oh yeah. Two two weeks. Two weeks from now. Yeah, absolutely. Write them all down and we'll remind me I'll start with Jim's question. But yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love to it's a great passage of scripture. We're not done, by the way. You got verse eighteen. You have another and another conjunction. She's going to talk about some more. But I, I think we'd better quit. A number of you are closing your Bibles, shutting your notebooks, closing your computers, which is body language for me to stop. So I'm going to stop. You just, you just really have to appreciate Paul, who was the epitome of a rabbi. Absolutely. mind of the Old Testament. And he's, he's able to turn this around oh, and he's able to explain to people in the New Covenant what, what, what happened. Yeah. And what it, it is. It, it's, it, these guys are all saying, think you know who Jesus is? I got a lot more to explain to you. So it's just great. Lord, we're thankful for the word of God. It's so clear. It, uh, it explains things to us. It creates lots of questions, sometimes some tension. But it explains to us in, in the fullness of words who Jesus is. We can't diminish him. We can't underrate him. We can't try to bring him down as just another great man. He is the God-man, undiminished deity plus perfect humanity, united in one person. And Paul's trying to capture some of that in these three pithy statements in three verses, verse 15, verse 16, and verse 17. Tremendous truth that we need to chew on and think about, meditate upon, and allow your Holy Spirit to help us internalize it, to make it a part of our being. This is who Jesus is. Thank you for that. Thank you to these men that are willing to take uh, an hour or so out of their busy Wednesdays and study the Word of God. 
Thank you for each one of them. Bless them in their respective areas of work and ministry and service, their families, their spouses, and all the different aspects of their lives. Our prayer is always, Lord, and I pray that for myself as well as for these guys, that we'll go from here to represent you in word and deed well. We are your light. We are your salt. We want to do that well. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 See you in two weeks.